You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. This is perfect for Mark to play this because of two things. Number one, I did indeed watch some of it. And I'm telling you, like, every time I hear this, I instantly go back to, like, this melancholic feeling of childhood and the holiday season. But it feels kind of like the holiday season for the Colts and the fact that they're just gift wrapping for teams like Buffalo, a guy like Naeem Hines. I mean, they're like, here, here's a stocking stuffer. Like they gifted him. They just gave him away is what it feels like to me. But Kevin. Yeah, loyal listener Jason said yesterday they didn't trade him. They donated him. Yes. Salvation Army's out front. They probably. Here's a Naeem Hines for you. Yeah, Yeah, a little goodwill action. As I thought about this, here is what. And my apologies to people that I'm going to be, this is going to sound dated because I haven't been here for a week. And you guys obviously very capably talked about all of this stuff. But Kevin, the thing that I've, the conclusion I've drawn when it comes to the Colts for this season and where they are right now, there are those that would in this position and, and I as a younger person probably certainly would have would have come on this radio in my first you know chance to talk about it and just teed off and called people incompetent and said what are you doing and the years a waste and they've they've butchered everything and they're constructed poorly and I, I probably would have done that 10 years ago that that's just how I, I am or how I was. But the more I thought about it, the easiest way for me to say it is simply this. I just think it's disappointing. I you know, I know what the Colts mean to this city. I, I've seen for my parents, for example, they look forward to watching Colts games. My dad really wants them to do well. He enjoys when they win. I took my mom, you know, after big wins, my mom's been like, well, I want to go downtown and see fans. I mean, I know what it means. And I'm disappointed because I expected more from them. Not because I'm a football prognosticator that is an expert, but because they told me to expect more from them. They told me that. It wasn't me going by the talking heads or I'm, I went by what the Colts told me. And the Colts told me that they were all chips in. That last year... They saw the door opening and they were going to go through that door with valor and vigor and do what they could to to catapult themselves into the upper stratosphere. And quite frankly, it looks to me like the Colts are the ones that decided to retreat and back away too quickly. And to me, it's disappointing. I'm disappointed in them. If I was to sound like some condescending father, I'm, I'm not angry at them. I'm simply disappointed in them. Yeah, I think when you make the short-term quarterback move, Jake, your expectations rise. You feel like, oh, we, we're not going to have rookie quarterback growing pains. I mean, we're getting Matt Ryan, 15-year vet. The quarterback was the issue last year. You're kind of getting sold on all of that. You know, from a market standpoint, I think what adds to it, Jake, is the Pacers had their worst season in nearly three decades. Uh, Indiana basketball got to the tournament, but such a clunker against St. Mary's. Purdue basketball, of course. All these expectations in the tournament. You go to the Sweet 16, and then you lay the egg against the Peacocks. So I think from a market fan standpoint, wherever you side, Butler, of course, firing their their coach, um, you probably had some anticipation of like, man, I want to see a team win. One of my teams win. So um, I, I think that adds to it. I do want to play this clip from uh, Frank Reich yesterday uh, on the Marcus Brady scapegoat front. Um, this was Reich yesterday um, asked directly about Marcus Brady, uh, his firing, and being a scapegoat. It's really unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. I understand that, and so that should fall on me. It's not Marcus. Um, he's not being scapegoated, uh, but I understand how that perception is. So, you know, I have to own that, but I can tell you it's a collaborative effort. Marcus obviously is, plays a role. We're all, we, we all work together. We're all responsible um, for the work that we do. Marcus did a good job. Ultimately, I made the decision I thought was best for the team. What is the primary responsibility of an offensive coordinator? Jake, it's to coordinate the offense. I get that. But what were Marcus Brady's primary responsibilities? Yeah, I think all the offensive offensive assistants have some role in the game plan. Like Scotty Montgomery, the running backs coach, he'll be kind of the public 
facing OC. He's not the interim OC, but he'll be that moving forward. Um, his background is heavy in college, so he's in charge of like run pass option stuff. So you know that's his segment of the game plan. And then Marcus Brady, I think, compiles all of that, and then he leads a lot of the Monday um, through Friday meetings within that building. Uh, Frank Reich is involved in all of that stuff, though. So if Frank Reich wants a change, he can make a change. Um, so I just don't think Marcus Brady's duties are anywhere near what Gus Bradley's duties are as defensive coordinator, what Bubba Ventrone well, are but my, is his special team. The reason I ask, Kevin, is because if Marcus Brady's responsibilities were not... In other words, did he have fewer offensive coordinating responsibilities than, say, the offensive coordinator in insert name of another franchise? Well, play calling would be the big thing. Okay, so... One would assume that what this means is that Frank Reich said, you know what, I'm going to be the one. You know, you go to these restaurants and they say each day the the menu changes by the day, these fancy restaurants. Frank Reich basically, and you tell me if this is a fair analogy, but Frank Reich basically said, at at the end of the day, I'm going to be the one that is selecting what goes on the menu for people that day. You can prepare all the dishes you want and then give to me the list of dishes you prepare, but I'm going to be the one that decides what we are serving in the restaurant. And Frank Reich basically went back to Marcus Brady and said, I like the way that I'm selecting the menu. I just don't like the options that I have to select from because I feel like you're not making the right dishes and you're not preparing for me an offense that I can play call enough of the things that I need. I think Reich has many more ingredient choices on his plate than that, I guess, normal analogy would would lead to. Like, Reich is... If Reich does not like something that is being installed in the game plan, he's the play caller. He's the head coach. He takes it out. Right. That's, so what I'm saying is... The, the it only, is a scapegoat, I guess. Correct. Is I, well, it, is, 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 yes. To summarize it all... It's a scapegoat move, and Frank said it yesterday, and this is a little bit more of the candid part, and it wasn't in that answer. Jake, Frank made it very clear, the first 15 plays of the game, you always hear about how it's scripted. You know, This is what we've been working on all week. This is the stuff that we're definitely going to run, and we're going to implement it to start a game. The Colts have not scored a single point on an opening drive all season. They That yep. is a direct reflection of Frank Reich. It's a direct reflection of him as a play caller. It's a direct reflection of him as a head coach and the lack of urgency that this team continues to come out of the gate, which has been unlike the first couple of seasons with Reich this year, and it dates back to really that Christmas game last year. They've been a very, very poor starting team. You get behind the eight ball, uh, you're not potent enough to recover from that, and that's why you're at this point in the season. And by the way... And we can table this for the 8 o'clock hour. But what has happened to Quentin Nelson? Uh, something has happened. Is he hurt? Is he, speaking of scapegoat, is he being scapegoated because guys around him are not blocking in the positions that they're supposed to and that is altering his responsibility? I don't know. But I, I'm no football guru. But I think it's safe to say he's regressed. Thad Mata is with us right now on this Thursday morning. Let's begin there. And, and first, thank you for the time this morning, Coach. Um, how beneficial was that foreign tour? And I guess outside of basketball, like from a team bonding, so many newcomers, extra practices, um, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, ways you look at that as pretty beneficial. Well, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, the basketball part aside, I think just from the educational opportunity that, that our players had, um, was was something that you know once in a lifetime type of uh, situation of things we were able to to do to see the places that we went. Um, you know, the one thing I did learn when we were in Rome is is it is true Rome wasn't built in a day. Um, there's there's uh, it took a lot of time to build like the Colosseum and all those things in case people thought that it was built in a day. But, um, <laughs> I, I, I do think, you know, just, you know, you look at the basketball side of it, you know, when, you, when you're a new staff, a new team, 
having the opportunity to, to actually practice and, and play some games, albeit they weren't the, the, the greatest competition. But by the same token, it was just it was a, it was a great experience for our guys to grow closer together and and you know for hey for us to get to know them and them to get to know us. I think it was uh, just a wonderful experience. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, Coach. How much as a coach can you learn about your team and the way players? <laughs> react to situations when you do something like that that has nothing to do with basketball does in other words can you observe things in the way that your guys are interacting with one another that far from home with each other etc that you can translate into pressure moments in a basketball game Absolutely, it's a great question, and 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 I think that there's, um, you know, people flip on the tube and, and watch a game and think that's that's the only thing that goes into it. Um, you know, just just as, as a coach, you go into a restaurant, you watch who sits with who, you watch, you know, who on a tour, who's going with who, who's hanging out, um, you know, those those type of of things. You know, who who says please, who says thank you, who. Um, you know, shows uh, manners and and is able to communicate with with people, <laughs> which none of us did a real good job because none of us spoke English or, or Greek. But um, you know, I think those are things that I look at as a coach in terms as you're trying to build your foundation of a program and just you know what what is the depth of this young man and. Um, uh, you know, how are his skills to interact? Because, you know, when you look at the game of basketball, uh, and especially in today's day and age, I mean, it's, it's hard. And, and, you know, it is a team game and guys are going to have to play together. Guys are going to have to bond. Guys are going to have to cover for each other. And, and I think all those things off the court do add up in terms of, of the making of a really good basketball team. Back at the helm of the Butler Bulldogs, he is Thad Mata with us here on this Thursday morning. Thad, you're a couple exhibition games into it. Your opener coming up on Monday with New Orleans over at Hinkle Fieldhouse. It's a 6.30 tip. Uh, What did you like, and what do you feel like you guys still need to work on from those exhibitions? Well, I think um, you know playing Saturday, playing Tuesday was was good for us in terms of a of a quick turnaround because that's what we're getting ready to face here as, as we get into the season. Um, I, I do think this we were a, a much much better basketball team on Tuesday than we were Saturday. Um, you know, I, I think as, as I look at our group. Um, Offensively, we we've still got to learn to to trust each other, trust the system. Probably most importantly, um, seven assists in the first game to twenty five assists in the second game. And I thought that was tremendous progress. I thought you know defensively, um, our activity level was a lot higher the second game, and and those were two areas that we really challenged our guys. You know, we we still we haven't shot the ball well from three, and we've gotten some pretty good looks. And, and that's something that uh, I want to, you know, continue to hone on for this group because right now, you know, we're we're banged up. I think the you know the number one thing we got to do is get healthy. Um, uh, we only had nine guys the other night, but I think uh, you know we got to get everybody sort of clicking on all cylinders, both offensively and defensively. And you know, Tuesday night. Uh, on the defensive end, we, we covered for each other better. We, we were doing a lot of switching because Davenport uh, had a unique five-man that could pick and pop and shoot three, so we were doing things differently. And and the guys did a really good job picking that up, and, and uh, we got to continue to build on that because I think that's going to be our, our calling card because I do think we can score the basketball. We, we just we got to get stops, and you know it, it's hard to run when you're taking it out of the net every time. Coach, from the last time that you were at Butler to now, that program has changed a lot. You were a big part of that, I mean, in a good way. When you came back and you're, and you're getting your feet underneath you with this roster, this group of guys, this style of play, this league for that matter, does it feel like the same place that you left or does it feel like it's an entirely different place with a completely different approach? Um, <laughs> I tell you, you know, it's, it's funny. It, it's obviously a different job. You know, uh, I, I I was blown away um, by the crowds we had for two exhibition games. You know, back when I played, um, I could hear my dad talking to my mom during the game because nobody was in the. St- 
you know, I think in terms of one thing that I love about Butler University is the university hasn't changed. Now, obviously, we're at a much higher level um, in, in terms of competitiveness in college basketball being in the Big East Conference. But I, I, I think that there's there's a lot of things they're saying. But, the, you know, the, the, the little things that have to change have changed. And, and I think that's a, a tribute to uh, Butler just saying, hey, we're, we're, at a different, we're in a different position now. And I, I think that, uh, you know, we got to continue to build upon that and, and just put ourselves in the best position to uh, be competitive across the country because it's, it, we're now a um, – in a league and, and you know that where we have to recruit nationally we have to uh you know bring in the best players that we possibly can thad mott is our guest he's the butler basketball coach of course he's on the payless liquors hotline coach i wanted to ask you uh, about this or give you the opportunity i guess to address this um you know dana bimbo did a nice article recently in the indianapolis star about greg odin working for you and being mm-hmm. on staff at butler and Greg Oden, to me, you know, I covered him when he was in high school, and I thought at that time he was one of the most, like, softly conscientious and respectful young athletes that I'd been around, and that was when he was, you know, the center of the basketball world. Obviously, you have a connection with him, and I think there are people that will look at it as, well, this is just that model, like, helping out his guy and being loyal. I wanted to give you the opportunity to let people know something about Greg Oden that merits Greg Oden getting this position based on his basketball knowledge or coaching ability as opposed to simply as a long-standing favor of you landing him as a prize recruit, which I think there are some people that may feel in the back of their mind. <laughs> Those people that think that don't know much about college basketball because you don't do favors uh, when you're coaching college basketball in that regard. But, uh, no, I, I brought Greg in for, for several reasons. I think, number one, um, you know, Greg. Greg wants to be a coach. Greg's going to be a, a tremendous basketball coach. You know, it's funny that, that uh, and I've always said this. You know, people come to like, you know, Greg is just the nicest guy. And I was telling our team the other day that, that Greg is was probably, and I mean, it's the nastiest player I've ever coached between the lines. I mean, he was ferocious when it came game time. Now, as soon as the game was over, he was back to being the nicest guy. But he was a winner. And, and I don't think you can ever put a price tag on surrounding your players around guys that, that have won, that know how to win. Um, you know, the fact of, of all the things that, that Greg has been through in his life, um, from being, you know, arguably the, the greatest high school player and, and, you know, leading us to the national championship game with one hand, um, being a number one pick, and, and then being injury-ridden and his career cut short. Um, you know, I, I, I've always tried to hire guys that have something to prove. And, and I think Greg has something to prove. I mean, the, the, the basketball component of his life didn't go the way he wanted it to. So now he wants to make an impact through the coaching ranks. And, and those are the type of guys I want around me. Those are the type of guys that, that I want on my staff. And, and, you know, most importantly, I mean, he has a, just a, a great ability to relate to players. And, um, you know, couldn't be happier with the job he's doing for us. And Thad Mata is with us here. Butler get the, their season underway Monday, 6.30 tip over at Hinkle against New Orleans. Thad, from a recruiting standpoint, you know we're now a decade out from the national title runs. Um, you've got this, frankly, kind of murky NIL situation. Um, just so much has changed, obviously, from a recruiting standpoint. But curious your thoughts on like Butler's brand and what you've noticed when you've gone out to recruit um do you feel like it's at a higher level than maybe you thought maybe a level that needs to get to um another level for you guys to compete in one of the better conferences in college basketball what have been your impressions of kind of the butler brand from a recruiting standpoint well you know i i think from this standpoint um knock on wood let me find some wood here. i'm knocking on it but uh in in terms of the recruiting process thus far um we've we've kind of gotten the guys that we wanted. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, we, we want to recruit a certain type of young man from a, uh, a certain type of background. You know, obviously those kids have, have got to be really, really good basketball players. Um, you know, in, in, in terms of, of the brand, um, 
you know, people people know Butler. People have a, a good feel. I mean, you're, you're you know, bringing them into one of the top academic, academic institutions in the country. You're in, uh, as you guys know, I, I think the greatest city in, in the country. I, I love Indianapolis. And and then, you know, you, you look at our fans and, and just the support that they've given us thus far, and, and hopefully we're going to get this season. Um, you know, I, I think from the standpoint of, of playing um, in a place like Inkelfellas, I've said this, you know, I've coached all over the country, and I think, you know, from Butler to, to Duke to Kansas, I think, you know, maybe I'm old school, but I think those are three of the, the greatest college basketball facilities in the country. And um, so it is a it is a unique opportunity for kids. And, you know, as I said, we got to go out and we got to find the right type of kids. And, and then we got to come in here and make them better. I think that's one thing that, uh, you know, we talk a lot about is just our commitment to, to making them, to developing them into the player that they're capable of being. I, I tell kids this, I, I, I used to be, I'm not sure anymore, but myself, Coach Gay, and Coach Calipari were the only coaches that had coached multiple national players of the year. Neither one of mine were top 100 players out of high school. And and, mm-hmm. and so, you know, just that, that commitment we have to our guys, to making them better, um, is, is something that, you know, kids say they want to get better, well, we're going to do that above them. Evan Turner and... David Turner. West. David West, hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a pretty good, pretty good resume right there. Uh, last one for me. Obviously, a ton of big topics in college basketball r- right now. Um, NCAA tournament expansion. You good with sixty-eight? Do you want to see it grow? Um, any thoughts yeah, on I, that? I, I'd say that they should let everybody in. I really do. I extended a week or whatever it would take. I, many years ago, I had to figure out where it was an extra week and, and two extra games, but. Uh, um, uh, yeah, I'm I'm all for the expansion, and and um, um, you know I, I think from the standpoint of you know, I I've, I'm one of these guys. I've, I've been at every level of college basketball, from a low major to a mid major to a medium major to a high major, and and um, and, and I know how hard it is. I, I, I think from the standpoint of um, you know the the more teams that can get in, the, the cream's always going to rise to the top. Um, you know, typically it does, but you know, you, you look back to uh, what was it, 2011? Um, it was Butler, Kansas, VCU, and UConn. And you go into the last week of the season, Butler, UConn, and VCU weren't in the NCAA tournament and all made it to the Final Four. And I think that's kind of the beauty of, of uh, you know, what that tournament's all about and runs and, you know, just the excitement. So, Coach, I want to go over one more thing here because I, I love – and matter of fact, we still got to come up with a pop quiz, Kevin, so take notes. Uh, the the stat that you just brainstormed there in terms of – say that again in terms of coaching multiple players that have won National Player of the Year. Um, yeah, David and Evan – um, Well, you were saying how many coaches – what was the stat? like? Uh, I, I, it, it, yeah, at one point it was myself, Coach K, and and Coach Calipari. I didn't, Mark Pugh maybe has had a couple now. And I, I don't know for sure. Maybe, maybe John Wooden did. I'm sure John did back in the day. Coach Wooden. I just called him John. Uh, Coach Wooden did back in the day. Um, but that, that was like as, as the current coaches when I was coaching. Because here's the thing, and that's probably right, of the current coaches, and this is the part that I think is cool. That would mean that you and John Calipari are the only, matter of fact, of all coaches, I believe you and John Calipari would be the only two to have produced a National Player of the Year at different schools. It's pretty cool, right? It is, yeah. So yeah. why not? And and you get one at Butler and you go three for three? What the hell? What, let's go, be, right? <laughs> I, I, I would be all for that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bet. Only at the third, fourth job at a third different school, or third school. So, yeah, it, it is a unique ending to my career. Simas Lukosius, here we go. You know, National Play of the Year coming up. Uh, Thad, I'll thank you. It. Thank you for the time. Good luck uh, this season, and I uh, appreciate you hopping on. All right, guys, thank you. Now, this song is also the Notre Dame kickoff song, so I'm kind of getting ready for Saturday night when you play this, Mark. Oh, I'm nervous about it, man. Sorry to confuse you. The other thought I had, and Mike Reese covers Patriots for ESPN.com, does an incredible job on that front. He's going to join us here in just a second. Um I'm looking at this Barcelona jumpsuit that Jake just got, Max, and I'm thinking to myself, he might save American soccer with us. He might be the savior to American men's soccer. T-minus how many you know days what? till the World Cup? I, I decided when I was purchasing that, 
you're you're relatively obsessed with football, so perhaps this creates in your son an obsession with football, right? Mm-hmm. And I have no idea. I don't follow it. Enough. I have no idea. Is FC Barcelona good? Oh, I think they were. I mean, I know that they're like one of the preeminent. Like, I mean, I think at one time they were kind of the Yankees of European soccer. Uh, we when we were in a bar. There was a, a a soccer match on, and it was West Ham, and there was a British guy behind me, uh, older, and he was rooting for West Ham, and I said, so is that the team that you cheer for? And he said, well, more often than not, it's a, it's a team I cry for. And so he, he's like a lifelong fan because he grew up in the area, and I guess they're terrible. So I decided, you know what, if I'm getting, and Liverpool apparently made a um, coaching change maybe. Or some sort of a change when I was over there because the BBC was all about. They had some commentator on, like every hour to break down the change in Liverpool. Well, it sounds like the Colts right now. <laughs> That's exactly what it sounds like. And I guess like. crying about playing a certain team, you would think maybe Colts fans some have done that. Some fellow with, with the a Patriots? British accent breaking it all down, right? I can't believe that. Trade Naeem Hines. Oh, God. Colts finally. <laughs> Mike Reese is going to hang up before you. Yeah, the no, he is. Uh, the Colts were able to finally beat the Patriots last year, but I'm going to guess that rivalry probably. You didn't tell is, me Mike was holding on, Kevin, all, or, or Mark all that time. Sorry, Mike. A little bit different here than it is in New England. Mike Reese from ESPN.com is with us. Mike, apologies on that front. Good morning. No, not at all. I love the FC Barcelona talk. What's up, Jake? What's up, Kevin? Uh, I. Yeah, I know. Mike, I, are you an FC Barcelona guy? Not at all, but I was enjoying the conversation. <laughs> I was sort of learning something. Have you, you been know? to Barcelona? Uh, never been. Have I, the Patriots played overseas yet? They did. They played They played in London um, 2009, 10, 2012. They were in Mexico in 17. So it's had a, and actually 97 preseason. I remember going to Mexico. So we had, have had a few of them, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, Mike, this is fascinating to me because we were talking about this this morning. And I realized that the Colts Patriots rivalry does mean more in Indianapolis, especially now, than it does in New England. I mean, I get it. But it feels very, pardon the pun here, deflated this year because of the changes that Indianapolis decided to make and just throwing a monkey wrench into their season. Does New England feel the same way? I mean, in terms of the Patriots. Uh, in their navigation of where they thought they were going to be going and where they are right now is New England kind of in the same category. I would say so. It's hard for me to to sort of know where the Colts are coming from, but I'll you know take your word for it based on on how you characterize it. I think in New England, I would sort of say they're right in the middle, fork in the road, and that's why this game's so big for them. You know, this they still feel like they've got the whole season ahead of them. And there's plenty of examples over the years in Bill Belichick's tenure that they catch fire, call it, you know, after Thanksgiving when Bill Belichick says that's when the real football season begins, and they go on a run that maybe you didn't see coming. Uh, I'd say the last one would have been 2018 when they won the Super Bowl, and no one saw that coming. So they still feel like it's ahead of them. However, there's been enough bad football through the first eight weeks of the season to know that it could easily tail off in the other direction. He's Mike Reese, covers the Patriots for ESPN.com. He's with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. The Patriots have won three of four, Mike. I guess to kind of summarize things, pretty good defensively, focused on their run game, quarterback play has been up and down this season, and they've got a couple of key guys on the injury list this week. That's well said. I think a lot of ways the similarity we could draw between the Patriots and the Colts is the turnovers. Um, You look at it, both teams have turned the ball over 16 times this season, which leads the NFL. The one thing the Patriots have been able to do is offset those by taking it away 16 times, which is a league-high total tied for league-high. You look at the Colts, they're not taking it away as much, only eight takeaways. So I sort of look at the Patriots' standpoint as they've been able to overcome some of their poor play on offense, giving the ball away, and they need to continue to do that if they can get the win on Sunday. Mike, in Indianapolis, we've seen, you know, if you exclude the Peyton Manning and Andrew Luck eras, 
you know, we've seen a franchise that has always kind of been looking year in and year out and resetting in terms of quarterback play. New England obviously thought with Mac Jones, I mean, it looked like, in fact, wow, they'd, you know, they'd found their guy just seamlessly in that transition. But quarterbacks sometimes, it takes a year or two for water to find its level and for you to truly get an idea as to whether or not a guy is a long-term guy. Is New England having that thought about Mac Jones, or is he clearly going to be the guy here moving forward? Have you seen enough now to know for a fact he is reliably the guy? I think there's still some level of doubt on that. And and part of what's happened this year that I think is so important to point out is all the changes around Mac from a coaching standpoint. So much of, of the to me, what I've learned over the years, or what I believe I should say is, you know, continuity for these quarterbacks is so important early in their careers. And, you know, you see how some of these highly touted quarterbacks come out and then they have a coaching change and they have to learn a new system and then there's another change and the things around them negatively affect their development. And that's been a part of the story for Mac this year. Very promising rookie year. We all saw it last year with Josh McDaniels, the offensive coordinator. Josh leaves to go become head coach of the Raiders. And the Patriots in the past under Belichick have always sort of stayed in-house and sort of stayed with their system from Josh McDaniel, from Charlie Weiss in the early 2000s to Josh McDaniels to Bill O'Brien, back to Josh McDaniels. Well, this year they did something different. Well, they stayed in-house. They really changed their system. And it was much different. And I think that has negatively affected Mac, or at least caused, um, you know, a, a not for that second-year jump to not happen that you would hope for. So got to see how this turns out and, and how this whole transition affects his development. He's Mike Reese. It's at Mike Reese, R-E-I-S-S, on Twitter, covering the Patriots for ESPN. Mike, I think there's this stereotype, I don't know if that's the right word, but certainly Bill Belichick's resume going up against young quarterbacks is well documented, particularly in Foxborough. I thought Belichick made an interesting point yesterday that some guys that have you know, been able to run at the quarterback position has given New England some problems this season. Um, the history would indicate, though, Belichick defenses usually feast on young quarterbacks with Sam Ellinger making his first road start. Yeah, and and I think there's probably something to be said for that. My counterpoint to that is that I think Frank Reich has had some of the magic formula to know how to get at the Patriots' defense. I think back to the Super Bowl when he was with the Eagles, and and I watched that game, the Colts-Commanders game last week, and I saw some concepts that I think are going to give the Patriots some problems. Sorry you had to watch that, to be honest with you. I can't believe they lost the game, guys. I know. I, I could not believe they lost the game as I was watching it. Well, the stat, and, I don't know if you saw the stat, Mike, and sorry to interrupt. No. Uh, since 2000, the Commanders have been, or Washington's been in 129 such games with a two-score or two-score deficit with five minutes or less to go in the game. They've lost 128 of those 129, and then... Or they've they've yeah lost and they came back to win on Sunday. So very rarefied air. The Colts are usually good at those historical notes for other teams. Yeah, and and so guys, just to, I'm finished the point, but I want to one thing I saw it in the game. I do think Frank will protect Sam, and they'll play smart and give the Patriots some problems. So I I don't expect I don't think the Belichick history is as relevant because of Frank's presence. But I want to tell you, just from like looking in from the outside, um, you know, I saw they fired the offensive coordinator, Marcus Brady, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, this offense must be a train wreck. And I thought it was, I thought it was efficient, you know, conservative. I was more shocked at the defense. This is what I wrote down. You're leading 16-7 with 11 minutes to go in the fourth quarter, and the, the commanders have the ball on their own seven-yard line. And they convert a fourth and six on that drive to get points. And then, 239 left. Colts are leading 16-10, and the Commanders are back at their own 11-yard line. Fourth and two, they convert, and they end up winning the game. I'm thinking to myself, that's more about the defense in this game than the offense. 
correct me if I'm wrong, I was shocked at how they couldn't close that out. Yeah, just, I mean, the defense certainly put them in a position to be in it going into that fourth quarter, but no finishing whatsoever. Like you said, the two fourth downs, the Terry McLaurin play, the pass rush was incredibly quiet. And to kind of pour more salt into the wounds, Mike, it's against a backup quarterback in Taylor Heineke. Yeah, and, and I, I think right now I sort of look like Heineke and Sam, I think, are similar quarterbacks, right? Like they can make some plays. And I think turning that to the Patriots, we were talking about Mac. You know, they, they have Bailey Zappi, the backup. One dynamic Colts fan should be aware of, the last time the Patriots played at home, you might have seen it on that Monday night, the home crowd was cheering for Bailey Zappi, who I think is similar to Sam Ellinger and Taylor Heineke, to take over for Mac Jones. So this is sort of the environment that Mac is coming back into as sort of, you know, turning the the page back over to him after pulling him from that Monday night game. Um, Sort of interesting dynamic here in New England in terms of the belief that some part of the fans even have in Mac right now. Mike Reese is our guest. He is an ESPN NFL Nation reporter, primarily covering the New England Patriots. Mike, kind of an old wound here and, you know, maybe a dead topic, I realize. But I do think it's interesting and wanted to ask because I've never been able to ask someone of your um, kind of insider knowledge from New England standpoint about this. When Josh McDaniels accepted and then backed away from the Colts job, there was conjecture within Indianapolis, certainly from a fan standpoint, of maybe he knew that Andrew Luck had hesitation about how long he was going to play, and that's why he changed his mind. Then people said, well, no, he changed his mind because Belichick came and said, listen, you'll get the key, keys to the kingdom if you come here. Then he ends up leaving New England. So is there something to the former there, or was it just one of those things that people are trying to create smoke where there's absolutely no fire? Yeah, and, and I probably didn't do a great job reporting on this at the time, guys. Um, but I, here's what I think the honest-to-God truth is now that some time has passed and maybe some more credible information. Right, because that's how it always works, right? It's kind of we find out after we get yes. through the mayhem, right? We, we yes. can go, okay, this is what happened. Yes. Remember the timing. The Patriots were coming off a Super Bowl. It was late, if I remember. And I, I think Josh was just trying to find more clarity in terms of what his situation was in New England. And in terms of, like, what is, not what is my future here, but, like, where, where are we headed here? What's going on? And he didn't know that piece. And once he was able to sit down, and it, it's hard for people to understand, when they're in the season in the playoffs, like, Bill Belichick, that is literally off to the side, not even a consideration. So once he was able to, to finally sit down with Bill after the season ended or whatever the timing was, I'd have to go back and double-check it, and the owner, Robert Kraft, was part of it, I think he felt more comfortable. Hey, okay, I know what my situation is here in New England, and that doesn't mean I'm going to take over for Bill Belichick, but I know how I'm valued. I know that I have a spot here. My family's good here. I think it was more about that, guys than anything related to Andrew Luck, the Colts, or anything like that. Mike, last one for me, and I guess this is kind of a similar exit, um, or you know, leaving Foxborough, that would be Stephon Gilmore last season. Um, obviously, he had a huge play on, on Sunday that went against him, but for the most part, he's been pretty good here in Indy at the age of 32. Um, what happened there? Was it mostly injury contract related? Why did um, they part ways, I guess, kind of the midway point of last season? Yeah, he, he had an injury, guys, and I think there was some um, uh, divergence of thought, if that's the right word, where the, you know, the team was thinking about, you know, hey, let's handle it this way, and I think Steph was thinking about it in a different perspective, and they just sort of agreed to disagree, and there was money involved in terms of whatever he was getting paid at the time, and I think it ended up just being a a difference of opinion that probably led Steph, and I'd have to, I want to go back and sort of tidy up the details to sort of just feel like, yeah, you know what, I, I think my time here has maybe reached an end point, and that's what, that's what ultimately led him to, to, to trade him off to Carolina. Mike, in covering the Patriots, and you've done so really for the entire Bill Belichick era, if someone, you know, 35 years from now, when someone asks you about Bill Belichick and covering his teams, would you say that his greatest strength or greater strength 
is taking the players that he has on the roster, and I know that he is responsible for those players being there, but is he better at, at coming up with schemes that match the players he's been able to accumulate, or is he better at accumulating players that match the scheme he has in mind? Ooh, good question. I, I think it's hard to pick one or the other. Probably the, the thing that stands out is just in the salary cap era, right? Like, how has he been able to stay competitive year in and year out? And so I think it's probably a combination of the two. I don't know how you could pick one or the other. Like, this whole thing got started in 2001 when they got this great free agent class with Mike Vrabel. Use him as an example. You guys know him from the AFC South. As a player, he was in Pittsburgh. People forget. And sort of an underutilized guy. And then he comes to New England, and the scheme brings out the best in him. So a combination, right, that being the shining, one of the shining examples. And, of course, it always helps when you have someone like Tom Brady over the years. It would be remiss if I didn't sort of point out the fact that having a guy like that can sort of raise the level of everyone else around him. Mike, I lied. Um, Rivalry-wise here in Indy, it is still Patriots, Patriots, Patriots. Like, definitely number <laughs> one in terms of venom. Where would the Colts fall in the Patriot fandom hatred ranking? <laughs> like, are, is every AFC East team above them, or the Steelers above them, or the I I don't, I don't even know like how the Colts are viewed right I now. I love it. I love it. I think um, they'd be a little bit down the line, and that's not to disrespect them. I think part of it is what you reference, guys. Like all the changes there since Peyton you know, left, and then when Andrew retired. So I think because of that, and, and didn't they go a stretch of a, of a few years there where they didn't even play each other? Right. Um, so I think, I think with time, it's faded a little bit. But, so I, you know, Jets are going to be, you know, up on, you know, like you said, AFC East team's probably going to be higher, Steelers a little bit higher, um, but then the Colts right there. In 2006, the last time the Colts won in Foxborough, did beat New England last year with Jonathan Taylor ice in that game here at Lucas Oil Stadium. Mike, I just texted Mike Wells. I said, this Mike Reese is an unbelievable dude. Um, terrific interview. And, of course, Mike Wells sung your praises. So thank you for the time, and uh, we'll, I guess, see you in Foxborough. I appreciate you guys. And, Kevin, I just want to say I enjoy following you. I always learn stuff on the Twitter about the Colts uh, following you there. So keep it up. I appreciate that, Mike. means a lot coming from you. Thank you. Hello, Patriots conversation earlier on in the 9 o'clock hour. We'll now hear from Zach Kiefer, who covers the Colts for The Athletic, his latest on the offensive line. Zach, I, I know we live in our little indie bubble, but I felt this way the past few weeks. Considering the finances in the group, considering the draft picks in the group, I'm not sure there is a position around the NFL that's underperformed more than the Colts O-line this season. Like In their own little ways, they've contributed to Matt Ryan's benching, Marcus Brady's firing, and Naheem Hines no longer being here. Yeah, you nailed it. It's just the root of every problem this season. And, and I'm not excusing the defense for the collapse on Sunday, but the defense isn't the issue right now. Everything that's gone wrong this season started with this offensive line. And and I think the start of it is, is very obvious. They thought they could essentially force two guys to play positions they are not good enough to play in this league, and Matt Pryor at left tackle and Danny Pinter at right guard. But... You're right. I mean, we're talking about the guys who got paid. And Braden Smith is a $70 million deal. And Ryan Kelly is a, is a $50 million deal. And Quentin Nelson is an $80 million deal. And those guys have not played at the same level. And talking to Andrew Whitworth, the former Super Bowl champion at the Rams last year, who's now working for Amazon Prime on Thursday nights, he's like, you can't just put guys in positions and hope it'll work out, especially at left tackle. And they're on their third left tackle now, and they're playing a backup in Dennis Kelly, who was never supposed to be the guy. And, and the sad part is, is Matt Ryan paid with his job, and that doesn't excuse Matt Ryan's interceptions. But I think the constant pressure got to him. You're starting a young quarterback in Sam Ellinger, just hoping it goes better. And Marcus Brady got fired, and Nike Hines won it out. I want to talk about Zach 
I mean, a couple of things. I'd said earlier, to me, the year is just, I'm just disappointed because I'm disappointed because <laughs> they, they, they told, like, I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed because I was told it was going to be better than this. And yet we're back to square one. Literally, we're back to square one. We, we've tried to put together this couch from Ikea, and we had extra parts laying around. We couldn't figure out what the hell they are, and we just destroyed them, and we're back to square one putting it together. That's how I see it. But to the offensive line, I want to get to this. Is Quentin Nelson regressing, or is he the victim of a bunch of spare parts around him that he can't figure out where they're supposed to go? Jake, I lean towards the latter. I've watched the tape, and certainly there have been plays that he's given up, right? And everyone's freaking out. What's happened to Quentin Nelson? If you watch the tape every week, he looks pretty good. Now, he gave up some plays the last couple weeks, but who did he play against? Jonathan Allen is a monster. And then Simmons is a monster as well. And and you're not going to have 55 perfect snaps against those guys. To be perfectly honest, I think Quentin is the least of their problems right now. Um... The other guy to his right, that's that's the one that's most confounding to me. I mean, it's, it's not a stretch to say Ryan Kelly was one of the best centers in football the last couple of years. He was a pro bowler multiple times. And there's just no push in the run game right now from the center position. There's miscommunication every single week. That's the one that makes everything harder around it. And then so Ket... So for Quentin, you've got a left tackle that's not very good, and you've got a center who's not very good. And and he's kind of paying the price a little bit, but he certainly hasn't been the elite Quentin we've seen from the last couple of years. And Zach's latest on The Athletic again, a great deep dive into the offensive line. Uh, Andrew Whitworth, among others, uh, chiming in about the Colts' situation. I want to go back to that for just a second, Zach. And I think what is kind of confusing to me is the decision that Ballard made at left tackle because we know his core beliefs, O-line and D-line, and look at the investments. I mean, they're heavy, heavy investments at both of those positions, but yet at left tackle, he took pretty much a glorified journeyman, a guy that, frankly, laughed at us when he's, he was talking about the idea of moving to left tackle, who you know wasn't even a left guard mostly. He was mostly on the right side in his career, whether that be TCU in college, Philly, or uh, in Indy last year, and put him at left tackle. That's the one where it's just confusing to me more than anything. Like, you know, disagreeing with him at other positions of value, okay, but that is one of the ones that he believes in, yet he just kind of, for lack of a better term, he kind of half-assed it at left tackle. Yeah, it's not just confounding, it's it's inexcusable, it's unfathomable. I I don't understand it, and for a guy that's talked about the trenches endlessly since we got here, since he got here in 2017, um, you know, I went back and and listened to a lot of the quotes, and and there's quotes where he says, it's all O-line, 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 that's how you win, that's what Coach Reed told me in Kansas City. And, and you're right. I mean, for, for all the talk in the offseason, how many times have we lobbed questions about not just the O-line, but, but wide receivers, right? Like, what are you going to do with wide receiver? Do you have enough? Do you have enough? That's been answered pretty well. Paris Campbell's played well. Alex Pierce has stepped up. Pittman has the drop. But that's not the issue right now. It's like you said, it's just this weak effort to force a guy to play left tackle that's really more comfortable, not even – at right tackle, but at right guard. And we lobbed this question to Matt Pryor in the spring, and he almost laughed at us, like you just said. Like you said, I'd be the last guy to think I'd be the left tackle of the Colts right now. And, and Matt Pryor's a nice guy, and I've talked to him a couple times this season, and it just gets a fish out of water at left tackle. Right. And to your point, JB, it just doesn't make sense because that's not a position you can overlook. And they did, and they paid a very, very dear price. Okay, Zach, let's go to Naeem Hines. Um, he certainly sounded like a guy that, that wanted to be moved. Um, do you think the Colts were close on moving anyone else? And based off their lack of activity outside of Hines on Tuesday, does that say anything to you about Chris Ballard's job security? Yeah, Hines, Hines wanted a fresh start. He wanted to play somewhere else. I think the experiment had exhausted itself in terms of every single season. It's, we're going to get him more involved. We're going to get him more involved. This year they didn't. I think he was he was tired of that. Um, never said it publicly. He is a team first guy, but I think it's pretty clear that he was ready to, to get going somewhere else. 
a little surprised that there weren't other moves. I'm not so sure that this team's ready to white flag, wave the white flag just yet, even though it seems like that might be their best play in, in the long term, right? When this season's over, does it really matter if they win five games or seven games or eight games? Like, wouldn't you just prefer five? So you can climb into that top ten of the draft and, and have a chance at a quarterback, but um, at the same time, who's going to trade for one of these guys? Like, the guys that potentially could be on the market aren't playing well and are highly compensated. Like, you're not going to trade. No one's going to trade for Matt Ryan. And then no one's going to – who's going to trade for Ryan Kelly right now? He's not playing well. He's expensive. So, I just, I just can't see many buyers for the Colts players. Zach, I'm going to make a statement, and I apologize for being a broken record here and for dwelling on this. I apologize to our listeners for that matter. But like, I feel like the Colts are spinning their tires, so I'm just going to keep saying the same thing. But I want you to tell me if I'm wrong, Zach Kiefer, because you cover this very closely. My concern for the Colts right now is that their money moving forward, if they are doing, and I'll call it a retool. I'll give them benefit of the doubt and call it a retool, not a rebuild. But my concern is that they have invested their money in the positions that just don't mean as much in today's NFL as the other positions on the field. And that they have a lot of money tied up in positions and players that either are not producing for them or are producing in a way that would be really good in 1991. Yeah, no, Jake, you're not wrong. That's a very, very real thing. And I think it's it's good and it's bad because – it's going to get worse because they're going to pay a running back. They're going to pay Jonathan Taylor. You don't let him walk out the door. Whether that comes this offseason or next, I mean, they're going to pay him, which is another factor in that 1991 blueprint. But I will say this. If they get the quarterback right in the draft, then you're paying a rookie quarterback a rookie contract. And there's going to be some growing pains, but my whole stance is this team's next quarterback needs to be drafted by the Indianapolis Colts. This is run its course, this garbage bin, scrap heap, garbage sale, grab someone else's guy that's been there for 10 years. Like, stop using other people's quarterbacks and go get your own. And the other thing is you got, you got some money. They have some money, and you need to spend it on the positions that matter now. And the number one position they need to fix right now is, is left tackle. So you need to think long-term about the quarterback position, but you can't keep just finding guys that are not solutions but left tackle. That will help them fix a lot of their problems, I think, on the offensive line. I think Smith and Kelly and Nelson will play better if there's a better left tackle. You can get away with it at right guard. can't get away with it at left tackle. That would solve some issues. But you're right, Jake. They've got a lot of money tied up on the offensive line and the running back. And, and Pittman's not going to be cheap when he's up either. Zach, we got about a minute left. Uh, gut feel on Jonathan Taylor's availability this Sunday? Yeah, I don't think he plays. That's my gut feeling. I think they signed Jordan Wilkins for a reason. So right. get ready for some Deion Jackson and maybe some Zach Moss, and, and I don't even know who else. Yeah, we'll see where Philip Lindsay is at this week. Uh, Zach, great work with that O-line piece. Thank you uh, for uh, being flexible with us this morning. Thanks, guys. 8 o'clock hours underway on a Thursday. Jake Query here along with Kevin Bowen, Mark Dykton as well. The Pacers on Monday, by the way, will be in New Orleans to take on the Pelicans. The Pelicans uh, were beaten, I think it was last night, by the Lakers on a game-winning shot. By Did you see who had the game-winning shot, Kevin? My guy from Notre Dame, Matt Ryan. Former uh, Colt quarterback Matt Ryan. Did not take him long to find another gig, right? Now that forced overtime, right? I thought it was the game winner. That three? I thought it was a three to force overtime. You know what the Pelicans are saying? We have Matt Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Uh, But before then, of course, at the Fieldhouse tomorrow night, it will be the Miami Heat coming in to take on the Pacers in their quest for 30. And joining us now on the Payless Slickers hotline from Fieldhouse Files is Scott Agnes. And Scott, the Pacers kind of called their shot. You tell me if I'm wrong here. In the fact that they said before the year, listen, we're going to have some games where we look like world beaters, and then we're going to have other games where you wonder what the heck is going on, and it's all part of the process. And so far, that's kind of played out to form, don't you think? I do, yeah, Jake. Welcome back to the States, by the way. Thank you. Um, But, yeah, over the weekend, you got uh, two games where they shoot very well. You get a couple of wins. Um, You even have another game. Then where Chris Duarte has the best game of his career, and that was after the team has sets a franchise record for threes, but they then they lose. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think it's exactly what's happened thus far, and they probably won a couple more times than you might think. 
Scott Agnes with us here from Fieldhouse Files. Uh, before we get back to kind of the on-court stuff, Scott, I do want to go back to uh, the Adrian Wojnarowski pod and Miles Turner's comments. We played the clip a little bit earlier in the week. Um, I'll leave it pretty open-ended for you. What did you make of what Miles had to say uh, in relation to the Lakers' interest? Yeah, I, first of all, I was just very surprised that they led off. That was just a very uncomfortable, not uncomfortable, that was just kind of an awkward way, I think, to lead off. Maybe it was trying to be done with that so Miles could be maybe, you know, get the tension out of the room a little bit, right? But to, to start a conversation with with that hypothetical, with something about rumors and stuff that most of the time players hate discussing. Um, honestly, they, they want to focus on the present. They're very much what they have to do today and everything. But I was not surprised that he did that or he uh, did an interview with hoop type stuff like that. Um, it's always interesting when they go to bigger cities, the L.A., New York's. Um, there's always some news or always some kind of stories that come out of it just because of the number of national media that go there. But from a general sense, I don't think Miles said anything terribly new or noteworthy other than kind of just kind of discussing his career and hitting some key topics like the fact that, um, you know, he, he wouldn't he, just the, playing in a, a major city, I think, interests him because of different things, including being playing in front of a national audience, which would also lead to more people watching him and could lead to better situations at the end of the year where he could be awarded, um, you know, being part of uh, league awards, whereas he's really not been included in those at all during his career, and that's been terribly frustrating to him. If the trade deadline, Scott, were next week, you think Buddy Heald or Miles Turner would bring back more for the Pacers? Hmm. That's a good question that I'm not certain about. The fact that Buddy has another year under contract. Is that looked uh, as like a my- pro for a team getting, you know, I, I, I'm kind of torn on that. They could look at it for miles and say, hey, we just won him for the stretch run, expiring contract, etc." With Buddy, he's obviously older, but like you said, he is under contract for another year. Yeah, the, the challenge is if you're acquiring miles, you have to be almost willing now, you know, moving forward to extend his deal and add to it, you know, eventually at the end of this season. So you have to, you know, he would like 20, 25 million more than that even, but doesn't mean he'll get it. Um, but he's a known commodity, meaning, you know, you know what he's going to cost you this season and next season. I think it's like 28 million. So the price is a little high. Um, I, my first instinct was buddy purely because has very dependable in terms of health has not had any kind of health issues. Whereas, you know, even miles had a sprained ankle in game one, you hadn't finished the last two seasons. So purely based off availability, I would go with buddy. Um, but yeah, I'm not exactly sure though. Scott, to me, when talking about miles Turner and, you know, I think it's probably safer to say when than if, but they flip him into something moving forward. My thought would be that they must be looking at Isaiah Jackson as well to make sure or or cement in their mind that Isaiah Jackson can do the things that they would be losing about the future if Miles Turner were to leave, notably rim protection and defense. I guess two-part question. Number one, do you think that is part of the thought process? And number two, if it is, do you think they've seen enough from Isaiah Jackson to feel like he can take up the slack that would be there if Miles Turner were to leave? I think we've seen a lot from Isaiah Jackson and enough to, to show you that the potential is there. Um, I don't think we've necessarily you know seen it game in and game out and, you know, um, you know, or to that certain level, nothing like where he's walking away with four blocks a game. Like it's, it seems like Miles inevitably churns out a little bit. Um, but I think you're seeing the potential and the comfort that they, in, in, in also the manner in which they, they talk him up. Um, is astounding in a good way, and as you would expect for a, a player that you know they traded up in the draft to go get in the first round. So yeah, I, th- I think they're comfortable with that, and also the fact with Jalen Smith. By the way, he's actually a true five. Uh, I'm sure you guys have discussed that, but uh, he's out of position a little bit playing the four so that he could start 
which was an enticement for him to re-sign here. So while I think Isaiah Jackson is that, that probably that future five in a, in a perfect world, if he continues to develop the way he does, Jalen Smith's an option. Um, and then just to speak to the depth there, then you got Goga there, James Johnson can play, you know, that front court lineup. So they, they have too many bigs for kind of developing right now. It feels like, you know, we are, if I'm not mistaken, my math could be off here, Scott. Scott Agnes is our guest from Fieldhouse Files. He's on the Payless Lickers Hotline. I think we are entering the 51st week of Kevin and I doing this show together because it was right around this time of year ago when we started, right? Somewhere there. Um, and during that 51 weeks, uh, the, there are two guys. I'm going to basically, Kevin, say that you are Marty Blake. The, the NBA scouting guru. Scott, Kevin has fallen in love with two guys during the time that we've done this show. Um, one of them is Benedict Matherin, and, and that obviously has worked out, and the other is Jalen Smith. Those are the two guys that you have most pined for, and Scott, let's be real, man. Different both types these, of love, if I could just throw that yeah, in Yeah, but I'll tell you what. Both these guys have... Jalen Smith in particular, I mean, I got to give him a lot of credit, Scott, because we know about the opportunities where he could have gone elsewhere. Did he know something in the fact that he he thought, you know what, this is a chance where I can really grow? And so far, it has appeared to be the case, correct? Yeah, I think this this was a perfect situation in terms of a player buying in um, to, to what he was promised and, and then running with it and going from there. Because to that point, he focused, He stayed in Washington, back home in Washington D.C. a little bit all summer, and focused on playing the four, and focused on those different things that he'd have to do to prepare himself, and, and including shooting more threes and what he would need to do defensively and being out on the perimeter more. But he he, he did not make the best business decision in the short term, if you will. Right? He could have taken on more of a guaranteed contract right away. We don't know any specifics. But I do know there are several teams interested, and he probably could have doubled what he's getting in his first year, for example, uh, where he's getting like 4.7 uh, in year one. But there's an opportunity here. Rick Carlisle did a great job recruiting him, went out to visit him several times, got to know the family. Um, the, from what I've been told, they give a lot of credit really to the whole Pacers organization to sell how he could really be part of the city, be part um, be part of this team, um, could help market himself, all those different things if he produced on the court as well. And so far, he, he has. And so he's done a nice job there. And then at the end, it's a three-year contract, which it was originally supposed to be two. It turned out to be a three-year contract. But that year three is a player option. So betting on himself, if everything goes to script, then, then he'll get the, the dividend down the road and he'll be like 24. So <laughs> he's in very good shape if he goes down this track. Scott Agnes is with us here from Fieldhouse Files, courtesy of the Payless Liquors Hotline. Scott, really big for Chris Duarte on Monday night. You talk about a guy that needed that sort of performance. I felt like you saw the confidence from him that I really don't think he ever lacked at Oregon or even early on in that rookie year. Uh, maybe some in- injuries have contributed to that. And I thought he said something interesting yesterday that a little bit of a tweak to his jump shot um, that he noticed and, and he felt like that contributed to the big night on Monday? Yeah, no, I would agree, KB. He, he, I don't think he was lost at all for confidence. Um, but one thing that I wondered about, this is just my thought, was last year he was kind of the hot young guy in town, right? He it was a lottery pick. Everyone's talking about him. He could be the man. What's his future like? Well, now it's Halliburton. Now it's Benedict Matherin. What's Jalen Smith doing, right? And so, you know, I would think from his standpoint, maybe, you know, the general thought could be, you know, where do I fit in this team? Nobody's talking about me. There was even a time during training camp, it was funny, he walked by some of us reporters and kind of in a playful, joking joking way, walked over and was like, eh, you guys don't want to talk to me, do you? You know, just kind of having fun with it. But I think that was very real. But um, in talking about, I asked him, him, Rick, Tyrese, all about that uh, yesterday. In the general sense, and this is really this is where Tyrese is so good at media too and just in alerting us and, and making things known. He was like, no, actually go look back at my second season in the NBA. You start to be almost a little overconfident. Like, Hey, I got this down. I played in every city. I get this. 
and but then you got to realize you're on everybody's scouting report now. People know your game, um, so you got to adapt and and get better. So I also had a slower start to my second season, and there was like the second game he had like six points. He you know didn't score against the 76ers, and I think that's just what Chris was going through—a kind of a natural pro- progression. Um, you know, and the challenge too is he's played four games in the starting lineup and four games off the bench and but then to go back to your point too he, he noticed yeah I noticed some I noticed some things and made some changes one of which at least that he was willing to share was you know that he was leaning back a little bit on his shot so one little change can make a difference along with just kind of seeing it going through and reinforcing what he had been doing in practice throughout training camp. Scott, is there anything the Pacers are doing that makes them atypical in the league in terms of approach, or are they basically, in other words, I think that, you know, when they had Turner Sabonis and it was, look, they're going to go with a low block game and kind of be the anomaly and, and hope that everybody then has to kind of replicate what they're doing. And I'll give them credit that they said, you know, that ain't going to work. And they had to kind of play catch up then. Are they playing a style or building towards a style that is keeping with the Joneses? Or are they going on their own path once again? Um, I I think they're kind of doing what we expected, except they're 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 playing Jalen Smith and and Miles Turner in the starting lineup, which isn't ideal. I don't think both of those again are really true fives, and you'd kind of really like to have a true power forward, and also you'd really like to have a true uh, wing out there, um, which they really haven't had in three or four years. Kind of that that perfect body in the NBA, that six eight lengthy. Um, type build there, so they're missing they're missing that. Um, generally speaking, I think they're kind of going along the the typical path. You look, you know, from back three years ago, they were last in the NBA under Nate McMillan in three point attempts. Now they're they're right there. I'm not sure where they stand today, but probably top three. Uh, maybe at one point they were they were leading the league. So they're shooting more threes. Their pace is up. Um, so they're very much playing more of a modern style of basketball than they were two, three, four years ago. Scott, we'll end with this. And again, Scott Agnes from Fieldhouse Files. I feel like we need a monthly update. Bless you, Jake. On the uh, Pacers draft picks coming up in 2023. So obviously they've got their own right now that's slotted ninth. Of course, ping pong balls or lottery will decide that. Then they've got the pick from Boston. That has no restrictions on it, right? That is definitely coming to Indy no matter what, right? Yeah, I believe so. And even if it does, it you know, it, a lottery protection shouldn't be in the cards. And right. there is one though with the Cleveland Cavaliers. I was going to say, I wanted to. It looks like that doesn't matter either. Yeah, right now Boston's pick coming to Indy would be at twenty overall. They're four and three out of the gate. The Cavs have won six straight. They're six and one. They got the second best record in the league. Uh, so that is the twenty ninth pick. And after the uh, end of season heartbreak last year. Uh, probably good to see Cleveland out to a fast start because that pick, if for some reason Cleveland doesn't make the playoffs, that first rounder would then turn into two seconds. Is that correct? Yes, that's that's the dangerous one. You hate to to have that pick, which they got for Kara Silvert, which we all thought would convey last year, right. ultimately just become a couple of seconds. So there's no reason to think it doesn't be, be a first this year, but then again, we all thought that last year. 9, 20, and 29 right now. You know, the, the Celtics kind of did the same thing one year where they had, remember that year when, I think it was when Brad Stevens first got there, and they had three or four picks and you know they were some of them were in the 20s and i think that you get the thought process of like wait a minute why build for the future if you're not getting three you know jalen brown and jason tatum's but you got to have other guys complimentary pieces around and i think that's what indiana's doing now you got to hit on them though kevin right no certainly yeah certainly um scott again the pacers in the heat in action tomorrow night our coverage begins at 6 30 over at Gamebridge. scott appreciate you uh moving your time slot around with us on this thursday thank you all good thank you guys